today's class is on the Fourth Ecumenical Council, uh, which took place at Chalcedon, a uh, city right across the straits from Constantinople. It was uh, essentially chosen as, as because it was a suburb of Constantinople that uh, the emperor's officials were able to easily access. Uh, initially, they were actually going to meet at Nicaea, but it was too far away because there was a so many people that came to it. It's one of the largest councils in terms of the number of participants, uh, over 400 bishops, and uh, perhaps one of the best documented in terms of the acts. There's a lot of imperial officials governing the meetings and uh, keeping keeping records. And and in some ways, it's a it's interesting because we. Sometimes they're tempted to think in terms of the ecumenical councils and in terms of their uh, the outward unity. You know that if you get enough people together, that somehow makes it authoritative. And so, you know, the more the bigger it is, the more effective it is. But uh, actually, it doesn't work that way in church history. Uh, often, the uh, fourth council, for all of its uh, size and very careful procedures, uh, turned out to you know at the end of it, we had kind of in fact contentions uh, coming out of that council that go up until today. And then if you think of the thir- uh, Second Ecumenical Council, which was very poorly attended uh, and, in fact, didn't have support from the Pope or, you know, it's always had a lot going against it. Uh, you know, the uh, results of that council was pretty much everybody agreed on the formula for eternity, and that was the end of it. <laughs> you know, it, was, didn't, it kind of didn't produce any controversies afterwards. So the... Uh, uh, thing with church history and with the, with the let's say the action of the councils and the church's proclamations on tradition is that the uh, uh, the the truth you know essentially when the church uh, clarifies things those are but become the church's tradition and it's not directly dependent on any uh, external factors there certainly were plenty of, of uh, councils that were planned as ecumenical councils that didn't even become you know, that we don't even recognize as ecumenical councils. And it's not because not that many people came, but just because the decisions weren't. In this case, it is an ecumenical council, but but um, the great size doesn't prevent, doesn't mean that you are solving all the controversies at that time. Uh, first, before talking about the council, I want to just talk about what are the uh, sources that you could use if you wanted to look into this yourself. The most uh, valuable for any of the of the uh, church councils is this uh, 14th volume of the Nicene, post-Nicene Fathers, which is a product of 19th century scholarship, uh, has selections from the acts of, of all the uh, ecumenical councils, it has the canons, doctrinal decisions, and some of the, the uh, church documents, patristic writings that were quoted in the acts of the councils are provided in here. So this is actually the the primary source if you want to study church councils. This is where all the basic texts are. There's, for Chalcedon, uh, we're fortunate in a number of Orthodox writers have written about it. <coughs> in uh, Recently, there's Archbishop Peter of New York wrote a book on the, the called the Ancient Can- Councils of the Ancient Church, which covers really the canonical history of the council. Uh, but these, from the point of view of doctrinal history, uh, the most easily accessible one is Father Meindorf's Imperial Unity and Christian 
uh, divisions sometimes available in our bookstore. That's uh, this is absolutely excellent. Uh, this I, it's important. Chalcedon, more than some councils, has been interpreted quite differently by Eastern and Western uh, Christians because of the large role of Pope Leo in the in the council, and uh, in a way, let's say a different. Uh, Papal interpretation of things, and, and the, the, there are some cross purposes at the council itself, and, and that has kind of carried through to modern times in the way that the East and West look at the council. Uh, the Pope had his own kind of viewpoint, and that carries through to modern Catholic appreciation. Uh, the Orthodox Church view is more uh, the way that the Eastern bishops looked at the council, and so I think in this case. You know, we can often use uh, all kinds of early church histories by Protestants or Catholics, and in many cases it's the same thing. You know, if you're reading about the martyrs uh, or the apologists, or, you know, in many ways it's not going to matter which, whose, whose church history books you're reading, but the account of the Council of Chalcedon will, or at least kind of the, the interpretation of its significance will vary depending on whether you're looking at an Orthodox book or a non-Orthodox book, and so that's why uh, I mentioned we're fortunate that there are some Orthodox books on it, and uh, Father Meindorf's is, is really very good. That's that's uh, uh, probably the best thing out there, and it's also easy to get. The other that's not so easy to get is this uh, Father George Florovsky's uh, Byzantine Fathers of the Fifth Century. Uh, kind of published by a small press that is not not easily available. It was his lectures in the 1920s in Europe from his church history class that were published originally in Russian in the 1930s. But it's a quite uh, full treatment of the fathers and council. So uh, covers Nestorius, Cyril, Theodoret, uh, Leo. And it's really very good. It's just that unfortunately the uh, English translation is not very widely available. Okay, now this, uh, the last class we talked about the Council of Ephesus, the conflict between Cyril of Alexandria and Nestorius, where Nestorius uh, was sort of following what is sometimes called the Antiochian school of interpretation, which uh, was intended as an answer to, to Arianism, the Arius using the human attributes of Christ as an argument against Christ's divinity. As a result, the, the Antiochian school emphasized the uh, distinction of Christ's humanity from uh, the Son of God. In order to uh, show the Son of God as divinity, the, the human actions of Christ were as much as possible separated to really to the extent uh, in Nestorius and in some degrees in, his, in the other Antiochian writers also of creating a separate person. So the, the son, of, son of God and the son of Mary almost as two people so that the, the son of Mary's death on the cross, the son of Mary's birth uh, did not detract from the divinity of the son of God because it was someone else doing all these things. Now at the Council of Ephesus, 
uh, in uh, 431, the Third Ecumenical Council, uh, the Church endorsed the Saint Cyril of Alexandria's criticism of this Antiochian position. Said, well, essentially, the the essence of Christianity is that it is the Son of God who is the actor who came to earth, took on humanity, uh, was born, died, that, that, our, that our salvation depends upon the, it being the Son of God who's doing all this, not some other person. And the church agreed with Cyril on this and made this decree. And that uh, seemed to, uh, that, you know, it's been fairly unanimous uh, of the church agreeing with that. The difficulty was that Cyril did not have any really clear terminology, and he used some expressions, uh, which I'll write on the board. That uh, apologize. One was um, from. He talked about the incarnation as being from two natures, uh, or sometimes Christ as being one incarnate nature. And he talked about Christ as being one hypostasis. Now, the term nature uh, kind of begs a question because our English term nature comes from the Latin word natura, and that's not what Cyril was using. He's, he's using a Greek word for natures, uh, phusis. And to a certain extent, uh, this whole controversy, or much of, con of the controversy, has to do with the fact that these are two different words. Because uh, in Council of Chalcedon, we're going to have the interaction of St. Cyril's thought with the thought of a Latin writer, Leo of Rome, the Pope, who is writing using the word natura, and which means nature in the sense that we in English mean nature. And so uh, when we read St. Leo's writings, they make a lot of sense to us because he's speaking our language, and that's right. When we read St. Cyril talking, saying these things, uh, they may sound a little odd to us because he's not actually using the word nature as we use the word, because he's not really using the word nature at all. He's using the word phusis. Yes? Um, I, when I look at nature, how we use the word nature, I, I would say that it has multiple meanings. Yes. Mean oh, okay. Uh, in, in the theological sense, uh, not I'm talking about mother nature. I'm talking about uh, the nature as in essentially being synonymous with the essence. So uh, man has a human nature. God has a divine nature. Uh, for Cyril, that's not entirely true. He's, he's, in Greek, Phusus uh, had the sense of a concrete reality that perhaps could mean that, but could also mean more something similar to a hypothesis. So he there's, it was vague on so his terms. This does not really follow from our use of the word nature to talk like this. But these were the phrases that he used. Yes? Uh, what is the, the best? Well, person, person, really, 
is the best uh, what comes to me. In a, in a person in a kind of ontological sense, as opposed to the Greek word prosopon, which means person in the outward appearance sense. And this is why he uh, chooses that term. And, it, and also because it can uh, go along with the three hypostases of the Trinity, you see. Now, there was some criticism of his terminology because it seemed confusing. Was he, uh, and one of the things that didn't seem clear is, well, is Christ still, uh, after the, hum the uh, incarnation, human and divine? And Cyril says, yes, that's true. So, after the Council of Ephesus, there was a... Uh, a kind of reunion, a union between Cyril and the Antiochians who had previous, who had been backing Nestorius but then agreed to give up Nestorius to be readmitted to communion on, in, in return for Cyril's accepting the idea of two natures in Christ after the incarnation that he's both hum human and divine. And Cyril agreed to this and that's what the formula of union is is two two natures and uh, one one person and so this was the a kind of compromise on term, Cyril's willing to accept let's say the Antiochian terminology and the Antiochians were willing to go along with the condemnation of of Nestorius and the uh, so, and condemnation of the idea that Christ is two persons. Yes? What was the reaction in Alexandria to uh, Cyril uh, making that compromise? Was it, it was mixed. It was mixed. Uh, many people, I would say that in general the formula of union uh, represents the consensus of the Eastern Church uh, after the Council of Ephesus. There were some people who felt that that uh, you know, he was not, you know, not, he was giving way to terminology that could perhaps be t tainted with Nestorianism because this term pusis is sort of ambiguous uh, meaning. And so there are some people who didn't like that, that he did that, but on the other hand, he, I think, realized that the point wasn't the, ter the terminology that if the point was getting if people were willing to agree to, to the unity of Christ as one person, then he, he certainly agreed with the two natures. And he, you know, if they wanted to use that term, he was willing to go along with that in return for, as long as it was understood, as not compromising there being one person. So, so he accepted the idea that there were two natures in the, the incarnate Son of God. Right? Yes. Not just from two natures, yeah. but actually that he has yes. two natures. Yes, right. Now, he did not, that wasn't his normal terminology, and I think, but he was willing to accept that terminology. Now, the, the part of the problem is that the way that each of this, this uh, formulas use the term nature is quite different. Uh, he's, these formulas are coming out of a use of the term nature that is more like uh, a sort of... Uh, not strictly being human nature as humanity or, or as divinity, but in the sense of uh, a concrete existence. Uh, 
or a state. And here, of course, it's being used more in the sense of essence. So each different uh, people had different ways that they were using this term. And Cyril, I think part of the greatness of Cyril, and, you know, his weakness was that he was never, not one with a real clear set of terms and definitions himself. But part of his greatness was he realized that the, uh, that the truth that he was trying to protect, to a certain extent, uh, superseded any particular set of terms. And you could use different, type, different uh, frameworks of terminology to describe the same reality. And so he was willing to do that. Now, that was fine uh, until... You know, he, then he died, and, and then we had a, uh, a crisis occur. And the crisis was uh, someone in Eutyches who did not really accept uh, this, comprom you know, this compromise of terminology. He was an uh, Archimandrite living in Constantinople. And some people, you know, kind of think of him. And think of the Council of Chalcedon, you know, that this is really all, uh, that this, he's, he's kind of the first uh, Monophysite. But uh, actually, he has, Eutyches has nothing really to do with the Monophysites. The Monophysites, uh, well, I mean, vaguely, some, something to do with how this all comes about. But uh, Eutyches had a particular heresy that, uh, unfortunately, uh, the patriarch Dioscorus uh, supported him, although he did not himself uh, endorse that heresy. But the <coughs> Eutyches' problem was that he felt that that in the incarnation, that the uh, assumption of the human nature by the Son of God uh, deified Christ's humanity to the extent that we could no longer speak of it as being uh, in kind of consubstantial with our humanity. And this actually was a directly in contradiction to Cyril's formula of union. One of the things that he agreed to was that Christ is homoousius with the Father and homoousius with us. Through, so in divinity with the Father and in humanity with us. So... Uh, Tunisia is a sort of double, it's called, sometimes called the double consubstantiality uh, of the same essence. So his Christ and his humanity is of the same essence as the Father. He's fully divine. And in his humanity is of the same essence with each of us. He's fully human. In, in one way, a simple way to think about the Council of Chalcedon is that it is, to a large extent, simply a reaffirmation of Cyril's formula of union. The, the formula was established. Eutyches, uh, in a way, rejected Cyril's formula of union with, with the uh, Eastern bishops and tried to, well, in fact, created a, a sort of a new heresy that no one had. Wasn't, he wasn't going back to anything of Cyril's. He was uh, inventing a heresy. And in the Council of Chalcedon, the fathers of the church very simply said, no, you know, that's, that does not agree with what Cyril is saying here or with what the church has taught, which is that Christ is both human and divine. So 
in one way, that's, we could simply just say that, okay, we have the Council of Ephesus affirming the unity, the, the formula of union. Cyril affirms the two natures. That's challenged at, 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 by Eutyches in 448, and in 451 the council comes and says, no, the, the formula of union is correct. There are two natures. Christ is human and divine. So in that sense, it's all very simple and straightforward and really wouldn't have caused any controversy at all. It's uh, just confirming what's really everyone already agreed to. But several things happened. One was that Eutyches was condemned for this by his local bishop, which was the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, whose name was Flavian. And two things happened. One was that uh, Eutyches appealed to the Dioscorus, who was Cyril's successor as Patriarch of Alexandria, and Flavian appealed to Pope Leo of Rome. Dioscorus, uh, for whatever, I'm not really unclear what his reasoning was, decided to, he held, there was a council held in Ephesus again, 449, and he reinstated Eutyches and uh, had Flavian deposed. And it's not really clear why he did, but uh, somehow he felt that the condemnation of Eutyches was perhaps motivated by secret Nestorians, and so he condemned a number of people, including uh, Theodoret. Actually, at the council, other things got involved. One was uh, Theodoret of Cyrus, who in one way is not directly involved with Eutyches at all, one way or the other, but he was a um, one of the bishops in the area of Antioch who had opposed Cyril and wrote a number of books uh, condemning uh, St. Cyril and the Third Ecumenical Council. So uh, Dioscorus sort of used the opportunity of this council to, uh, to knock off some enemies, <laughs> and that was Theodoret was one of them. So even though he's not particularly related to the question of Eutyches, he said, okay, so here's this, uh, this bad guy there who's writing books attacking our beloved Cyril, so he's uh, deposed. And think, oh, this will be reversed at the Council of Chalcedon, but ultimately, that decision of the Council of Ephesus, what becomes known as the Robert Council, because it's not an ecumenical council, will ultimately be endorsed uh, by the Fifth Ecumenical Council, which will then come back after. So the Fourth Council, Chalcedon restores Theodoret, and then the, the Fifth Council condemns uh, some of his writings. So it doesn't condemn him personally, but it condemns his, some of his writings as heretical. So there's a, with some element of, of uh, truth in what Dioscorus was trying to do here. But, but Dioscorus did not, uh, anyway, he was excessive in, in bringing back Eutyches, who was clearly heretical, and condemning Flavian, who was, who was not. Now, Pope Leo also had kind of been pulled into this, and he kind of uh, you know, heard about Eutyches and, of course, agreed that Eutyches was a heretic. But then he, he sort of noticed the formulas that were, of Eutyches was, was using to describe Christ's incarnation, such as from two natures, where Eutyches is just simply quoting St. Cyril of Alexandria. And in Latin, well, that doesn't, this sounds, uh, didn't sound right. That sounded, sounded bad to him. So he decided, well, that's heretical as well. And he uh, 
kind of wrote back what his famous uh, work called The Tome of Leo, saying not only that, that, uh, that Eutyches was a heretic, but that these, this formula of St. Cyril was also heretical. And this creates uh, another whole problem. What happens in, in uh, Ephesus, Ephesus, Zaskris does this, kind of offends a lot of people, and the emperor who is kind of supporting Dioscorus dies in an accident shortly after that council. A new emperor comes along who is not supporting Dioscorus and decides to hold another council to rectify the excesses of Dioscorus. And that council is the Council of Chalcedon, uh, just two years later. At that council, they go ahead and say, okay, no, uh, this was wrong. Eutyches is, is a heretic, which everybody pretty much agreed on. But then uh, the emperor asks them, okay, you need to uh, come up with a, with a, a formula, you know, a Christological uh, formula, not a creed, but some kind of statement on Christology, what's going to be the orthodox doctrine. And they did not want to do that because they didn't want to, they didn't want to be creating new doctrine. They just said, well, we have the creed. That's good enough. You don't really need anything else. But the emperor was insisting. And Pope Leo, uh, his opinion of this was that, that, uh, Dioscorus, you know, he was deposing Dioscorus and he was sending the tome to be accepted. That was, that was the orthodox doctrine, what was in the tome. Well, the council did not accept either of those things. They, they ultimately uh, deposed Dioscorus for disobedience, uh, not for heresy. He also was saying from two natures. And from the point of view of Leo and Western commentators on the Council of Chalcedon, they said, oh, well, Dioscorus was condemned as a heretic because he said that Christ was from two natures. Well, that was, he's not condemned as a heretic at the council at all. He's only removed for disciplinary, uh, and the council is quite clear about that. And the formula from two natures uh, was used, in fact, when, they, when the emperor first asked them to come up with a, with a, a um, formula on Christology, the first formula that everyone agreed to was from two natures, exactly the one that Leo condemns in his tome as being the one that everyone thought was correct. Now, uh, what the council ultimately does as a way of, of coming up with a final you know, a statement is they combine, they don't just take the tome as, as okay, well, this is the tome is the statement. No, they examine the tome. And in fact, a lot of the bishops at the council had uh, serious reservations about the tome and end up questioning whether or not it's a heretical document. And I'll go over it with you what, what were their questions. But ultimately, they were satisfied in discussions that, to, that the tome conformed to the doctrines of Cyril. And so at, it was accepted as conforming with Cyril. Now, what, uh, so what the final statement was, was a kind of combination of uh, the tome, the formula of union, and the, uh, and the teachings of Cyril in his own writings, and some, uh, particularly the second, his second letter 
against the Nestorians were included. So the, these, the three, these were three documents included in the uh, Acts of the Council as kind of being the standards for determining correct Christology. Cyril's original writings, the Cyril's to- formula of union with the Easterners, and Leo's tome. There is some different, I mean, all three have some differences of the way they approach things terminologically, but the council, uh, in a way, what the, the problem that the council faced, as opposed to just say the, just the simple question of saying, yes, Eutyches uh, is disagreeing with this formula of union of St. Cyril. If it, if it had ended there, that would have been very straightforward. But because it had to incorporate, somehow deal with the, the Tome of Leo that was coming in from, in from the West in Latin, incorporate Leo's terminology into Cyril's uh, Christology, which had uh, and uh, kind of vague, ter- vague terminology of its own, quite different. It had to, this made the council really uh, take some very creative steps, and it's actually this creativity that made the council controversial, because it had to incorporate. Leo talks about um, Christ being incarnate, one person in two natures, and in fact, uh, you know, even kind of speaking disparagingly about those who would talk about from two natures. So. That's kind of hard to, you know, you have to, to reconcile someone who's saying from two natures with someone who's saying in two natures and get them to all be part of the same decision. He also introduced um, the concepts of the uh, each nature retaining its own properties and energies or activities, which ultimately will be confirmed in the Sixth Ecumenical Council. But it was kind of a new idea in the East to, to say all that, you know, to kind of try to spell out these additional things. Yes? Although I mentioned to you one other time that it seems that when I was reading Tertullian that he's, he's using very similar language to what Leo is saying. Yes. Actually, that's because Leo is uh, coming from uh, a Western Latin-speaking uh, uh, background. We have Tertullian, and, and Augustine also has written some on this. So a lot of the expressions that were common in the West, uh, and also because the term nature very clearly in, in Latin is essence. You see, that's what the, so to him, the, the phrases that St. Cyril was using sound heretical because it sounds like he's denying that there are two essences, that the humanity and divinity continue to exist in Christ. Now, now Leo was not attacking Cyril of Alexandria directly, but, but he, by implication, you know, he was questioning, seemed to be questioning his terminology. And what the fathers are doing is they, the fathers of the council are not rejecting Cyril. Their, their, their whole premise is, okay, we accept Leo because Leo agrees with Cyril. And it's just that um, it takes a sort of a, a leap to, to see that Leo and Cyril are actually actually saying the same thing when they appear to be saying opposite things in their in their words and that's because of the somewhat different definitions of the terms that they're using <coughs> okay this uh, comes up with a I'll, I'll talk about 
some, well, I'll just mention now. The, the, as I said, the other um, things that he talks about is, is this, uh, the properties the S and the natures and the, and the uh, activities. He also has a sort of strange uh, way of talking in, in the tome that's quite different from the way Cyril talks. Um, it's just a kind of funny expression. If you look on, um, if you happen to have the book 256 in the tome. Uh, okay, first for in Cyril, Cyril uses the term the logos as the, the logos, the word of God, as a kind of synonym for the hypostasis or person of the second person of the Trinity. So when Cyril talks about the logos suffered on the cross, he's saying, well, who is it that suffered on the cross? The son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is suffering on the cross. Leo, for some reason that I, I really don't understand, and, uh, but uh, unless maybe he's inheriting it from, from Tertullian or something, he uses the term logos really to mean the divine nature. And so he, okay, like over here on 257, uh, and so we confess that the one Son of God is both uh, word and flesh, both the logos and the flesh. And to us, of course, that sounds sort of strange. And then in these, in these, uh, he, Leo, this is actually, Leo's tome is a very beautiful document that's well worth reading. He develops, uh, the, describes the two natures of Christ uh, very beautifully. Uh, but, it, but it sounds odd in the way that he uses this, this phrase. As the word does not withdraw from equality with the Father in glory, so the flesh does not abandon the nature of our kind. For as each form uh, does the acts which belong to it in communion with, with the other, the word, that is, performing what belongs to the word, and the flesh carrying out what belongs to the flesh, the one shines out in miracles, the other succumbs to injuries. Okay, these, that's actually a phrase that will be quoted uh, uh, hundreds of times in the next hundred, couple hundred years uh, by people uh, debating what in the world does Leo mean here because it's uh, well, it sounds like if he's saying from an from eastern point of view, he's talking about the word doing the divine things and, the, and to us that means the divine person is doing the divine things and then someone else is doing the human things. Well, who is that someone else then? And so it sounds like it's Nestorianism to many people. And this is why uh, the bishops of Illyria and the bishops of Palestine initially did not want to accept the Tome of Leo as Orthodox. But in the, co the council, uh, the Tome was explained verbally as being in agreement with Cyril, that the, the representatives of the, of the Pope were there and the other fathers... Uh, we're saying, no, look, you know, this is really, he, what he really means is two natures, and, it's, and this is just the same as what Cyril's saying. And you can understand it that way. Uh, certainly there are parts of the tome that you could take and say, well, see, it implies that. And uh, it implies Cyril's theology. Leo was familiar with Cyril's writings. So on the strength of that, this was accepted. Now, the problem is, is that when you had people who 
became suspicious and felt that perhaps uh, Leo was really a Nestorian and that Council of Chalcedon was really a reaffirmation of Nestorianism, when they looked at these words, they said, well, this doesn't sound very clear. I mean, how do we know that this isn't really bringing back Nestorianism? And the, uh, the good part would have been that if Leo would have said, oh, well, yeah, gee, I'm sorry, I didn't write very well there. I'll, here, let me write some more and explain to you exactly what I mean. Well, then perhaps we would not have had any Monophysite churches today. But Leo was not that kind of person. He, he was the kind of person who felt uh, that, uh, that actually the Council of Chalcedon's responsibility was simply to submit to the tome and not to do anything else. And so he didn't even really like the idea that they were reconciling his his theology with Cyril's and coming up with a, an, a formula that was a kind of synthesis of the two. And so his his reaction to people who questioned his his tome was simply that they were heretics. And actually, when you look at a lot of Western church history, that's exactly, I mean, most Western uh, history of, the, of this period follows Leo's point of view, that the Easterners were, in fact, mostly Monophysite heretics who were really similar, very basically the Eutychians, and that Leo sent over his tome explaining the correct doctrines, and some of the East were obedient to it, and the rest uh, were heretics, and so they you know, became Monophysites and have been heretics ever since. <clears throat> well, this is... Um, from, from the Orthodox point of view, that's really not correct. We don't look at it that way. We see it, first off, that the Eutychian heresy and the Monophysite churches of today have nothing in common and never have had anything in common. Uh, the Monophysites uh, condemn Eutychianism all along. Second, that... Um, that the tome, of, we would say, and ultimately the Fifth Council bears this out, that the tome of Leo and even the Council of Chalcedon's own formula uh, are not as entirely clear as they should be. The tome in particular seems to raise a lot of questions, but the even the final formula has certain shortcomings. And, and the, the shortcoming is this, that okay, by putting all this together, you know, Cyril, uh, the formula of union, Tome of Leo, we ended up at the Council of Chalcedon saying, okay, that there's, they put in Cyril's one hypostasis. We have two natures from coming in, in two natures from coming from Leo. And this other, you know, the two natures formula of union with the double consubstantiality, so on. So, it seems like, the, in one way, the council just took everybody, everybody had said that we, we all thought was orthodox and we stuck it all together. And that's, I'll even read to you, that the, you know, it's, it should be fine because everything's in there. But in some ways, it doesn't answer an important question. But let me just read you the, the definition anyway. Following the Holy Fathers, we teach with one voice that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he confessed as one in the same person, perfect in Godhead, perfect manhood, true God, true man, reasonable soul, uh, consubstantial with the Father and his divinity, consubstantial with us in manhood. Uh, oh, this is page 264, anyway. Made in all things like to us except sin, begotten of his Father before all the worlds, 
and of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. Actually, uh, there were people that the council who didn't want to have the mother of God phrase in there because, well, we'll get to that, but, uh, but it was, you know, pretty most of the people wanted it because, of, of course, Ephesus had put it in. Uh, so it was there. This one and the same Jesus Christ, okay, uh, confessed, must be confessed in two natures, unconfusedly, immutably, indivisibly, inseparably united, and that without the distinction of natures being taken away by such union, but rather the peculiar properties of each nature being preserved, which is coming out of Leo's tome, um, united in one person and hypostasis. Uh, here in NPNF, they translate it as subsistence, which is the Latin uh, word, kind of translation word that the Latins invented for translating hypostasis. But uh, it's, it's in Greek, it's hypostasis. Not separated or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word. Okay, so that sounds great. <clears throat> now, the problem was that, you know, it didn't just sound great to the people who had been going through this all along, the followers of Cyril, from, but it also sounded great to uh, Nestorius, who was still around? Uh, well, not at the I don't know about the council. He was around when Leo wrote the tome and said, "Oh, that's exactly what I believe." And then Theodoret of Cyrus was readmitted because uh, they were undoing what Ephesus too had done. He was readmitted, and um, they all he had to do was to con agree to condemn Nestorius, which he didn't want to do, but he did finally. It's okay. He's back in now. He's part of the council. And ultimately, Theodoret became sort of like the number one apologist, uh, defender of the Council of Chalcedon, and it's uh, the kind of most uh, significant uh, church writer, uh, you know, kind of uh, interpreting the Council of Chalcedon to the to the Christian world. Uh, the difficulty. With that is that up to this point he's been the one person defending Nestorius. He's the person who was writing books against Cyril of Alexandria and uh, and the Council of Ephesus. And actually his um, his book that we still have, the Aaronistes against uh, against Eutychianism nominally, was originally written against Cyril in the Third Council and was just sort of revised, you know, takes the name Cyril out and put uh, Eutyches in and. And so, uh, so this kind of defender of the Chalcedonian solution, you know, was a kind of pretty f famous enemy of Cyril and, and the Third Ecumenical Council. So, well, that naturally raised the question: Well, what is this? You know, what does this uh, formula of Chalcedon actually mean? And if you looked at what Theodora and Nestorius are saying, <coughs> and and uh, also, the next patriarch of, after the council, the next patriarch of Constantinople was uh, Gennadius, who was also someone who had been writing against Cyril of Alexandria before. What they understood it to mean was kind of the same thing. Now, Nestorius earlier did not come right out and say, oh, I believe that Christ is two persons, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and the Son of God. He always talked about there being one person uh, what he would use the term a prosopon of union, which was an outward person that 
in which the Logos and the Son of Mary could both be seen. So that means outwardly, you know, when you walked down the street and you came to Jesus of Nazareth, there weren't two people standing there, but there's one person that you're meeting, and uh, in, but inside that one person is two, per, two people. In, when you read Theodora and Nestorius at, at the end, his late writings, what you're seeing is that, okay, they're willing to go and say, okay, we'll call our one hypo, our cross upon that one person. We'll even use the term hypostasis. But that, who is that hypostasis? It's still a result of the union of the Son of God with the Son of Mary. So there's a, uh, from the interpretation of the Nestorians and former Nestorian sympathizers, Chalcedon to them uh, was a vindication of Nestorius and a vindication of the uh, that kind of Antiochian viewpoint of of uh, the Son of God and the and a human person being combined in one outward uh, appearance. Yes. If Nestorius didn't use the term two persons, I guess I've always been mm-hmm. thinking that that was the essence of his position. It is. That well, he didn't use it outwardly. I, I, excuse me. Well, yeah. what I, was, I thought that that was the was the kind of characteristic, the most, the thing that he was claiming. And yeah. And you're saying that's, that's wrong. How did Cyril then, in the formula of union, end up agreeing to the two idea of two natures mm-hmm. if that was kind of what Nestorius was well, actually claiming okay. as well? Because it's not really a question of uh, terminology. The problem with Nestorius is that de facto in his system uh, the person who died on the cross is not the second person of the Trinity. That's it. In other words, he could say, oh well, there's this one one that, that Jesus and the Son of God become combined in one prosopon, one person, but you're still talking about two people being united there. And what the point that Cyril is making is that there are two people being united, that if the person dying on the cross is only one person, it's the Son of God. And so, for him, the terms you used were not that important, as long as you agreed with that central point. So Nestorius could say one of the natures was dying. Is that what he's saying? The other natures not dying? Well, except that he's... No, he he was actually. I mean, in, in Nestorius's early writings, you're really getting almost a three-person uh, Christology. There's the person of the logos, the person of Jesus, and then they become combined into a person of union, whom you is visible to the world. So the person of union is, I mean, in a, in a let's say in a strictly philosophical sense, isn't really a person. He's a construct in which you are seeing. The two people. So, uh, for example, if you think of the prophet uh, Isaiah, in you know you see the prophet Isaiah, but but he is speaking with the voice of God, but of course he's still Isaiah. So there's God and Isaiah there in one person that we see. So that's kind of how uh, Nestorius was doing it. So 
the, of course, for the fathers, it's pretty clear that the, at the Council of Chalcedon, most the fathers constantly refer to Cyril, and, and by implication, so many of their statements imply Cyril's understanding that the one person they're talking about is the Son of God, but it's never actually clearly stated in that formula, you know, the, the final horos or definition of the Council of, of Chalcedon. So, the people like Theodoret and Nestorius were able to interpret, uh, and Gennadius, were able to interpret the Council of Chalcedon as a vindication of their opposition to Cyril. And because the most prominent defenders of Chalcedon <coughs> looked at it that way and presented it that way, the other the followers of Cyril who were not at the council uh, naturally <coughs> had some questions about the Council of Chalcedon. They thought, "That's uh, have we, you know, or have we have we just returned to Nestorianism?" As Nestorius and Theodoret seemed to think, and <coughs> I think that the problem was that because there wasn't a clear defense against that, against let's say these former associates of Nestorius at the time, in a certain sense because of the of the uh, offense that uh, Dioscorus had caused at Ephesus too, this restoration of the associates of Nestorius gave that impression. And what we needed was uh, someone to come and say, well, no, we're not endorsing. We're not endorsing Nestorius' ideas. We are, uh, and, and very carefully separated the Council of Chalcedon from that interpretation. And, and Leo, of course, would have been a good person to do that. But as I said, he was not. He, unfortunately, he interpreted the, the uh, Eastern fathers who did not, who were afraid that the council was contradicting Cyril he interpreted them as heretics. He just thought, well, if you have a question, problem with my tome, obviously you're a Monophysite heretic, you're a Eutychian, you don't, so I don't need to talk to you anymore. And Theodoret and the others who, who said, wow, thank goodness you're writing about two natures, uh, he saw those people as best supporters. So in a way, the, the, the Leo and kind of the result of the council was to sort of elevate former Nestorians as being true representatives of the council and to, uh, to attack the followers of Cyril. And so what happened was that after, it didn't all happen immediately. I mean, there was some, in Palestine, there was an immediate insurrection against, uh, against the patriarch juvenile by the monks. But uh, in Egypt, it was almost five years later that uh, Timothy Alurus was consecrated by the Egyptian church as a patriarch who did, did rejected the Council of Chalcedon. Five years of which uh, there could have been you know, negotiation to solve the problem, but there wasn't. And so the problem was created then that, that a group of the Eastern Church, the followers of the Council of Ephesus and of Cyril, Kind of feeling after a while that well they had been betrayed they broke away did not accept the Council of Chalcedon. Now the next hundred years are going to be spent trying to resolve this problem. Initially the response of the emperors was simply to uh, use military force and to uh, kill or you know 
disperse anybody who didn't agree with the Council of Chalcedon and install bishops by force uh, to kind of impose it. And what this did was it left the theological ambiguity about what does this mean. It left it open and kind of left left it for people to assume the worst. And that's uh, why probably today that we could say we have we we have monophysite churches because. <coughs> These things were delayed, not resolved for so long that, that these churches formed as separate churches. And then when we, the emperors finally got around to saying, well, yeah, this is a, gee, it looks like we have a problem here. And the theologians were, there were theologians who started to try to recapture uh, the, the agreement between St. Cyril and Chalcedon uh, in this, in really in the 6th century, in the 500s, that started with John the Grammarian, John of Scythopolis, uh, perhaps not household names, uh, but they were actually the ones who started saying, well, this is a wrong interpretation of Chalcedon to see it as just new as Nestorianism. It's really agreeing with Cyril. And they began a, a whole process of trying to defend <coughs> Cyril's crystal to defend the third ecumenical council within the theology of the fourth ecumenical council. And that process ultimately leads to the fifth ecumenical council, which finally resolves this. And it's there, it's only there that they say, oh yeah, Cyril's terms are fine too. So because they, because the Monophysites are saying, well, if you're condemning what Cyril said, well, how can you be orthodox? So the fifth council says, oh, well, you can say what Cyril said. You can say from two natures. You can say one incarnate nature. So unlike kind of the Roman view of, of this history of this period, from two natures isn't the heresy because that's a formula of St. Cyril. It's how you understand it. If you understand it in a monophys in a, in a, in a Eutychian way, well, then you're a heretic. But Cyril didn't understand it that way. And then at the same time, it also took... Uh, Leo's formulas and interpreted them in, in, the, in, the, in conformity with the Third Ecumenical Council that who is this one hypothesis? Not a hypothesis of union. That hypothesis is the second hypothesis of the Trinity. Now this was a long road because in one it, it kind of uh, the result of Chalcedon and Leo's policies was that People like Theodoret were sort of put in the driver's seat after Chalcedon, and they were not at all anxious to have Chalcedon interpreted as being in agreement with Cyril. So there really was a great struggle within the Chalcedonian Orthodox Church in the East uh, between those who wanted to continue to see it as kind of supporting a Nestorian-like theology and those who wanted to uh, see it as continuing being faithful to the theology of the third council and the unit showing the, the uh, identity of Jesus with the, so, the son of God. And that whole struggle is what leads up to the fifth council and uh, I'll talk about it more in the next class when we do the fifth council. But it's a very exciting time in uh, church history. So yes. From two nature, use the word. Well, Greek is pusis. Yeah. And one, one incarnate nature. And yeah. One, uh, and one hypostasis. Yeah. Is a person? Yes. 
How is that different than a monopsy? It's not clear what a monopsy is. Okay, yes, now I guess I should clarify terminology. A monopsy is not a Eutychian. The heresy condemned at Chalcedon is Eutychianism. A monophysite is simply someone who says that in Christ is one phusis following the terminology of Cyril. So the Eutychian says what? That, the, that Christ's humanity is, no, is, is changed by the incarnation and is no longer, uh, in, he is no longer uh, consubstantial to us. So what we call a monophysite today, well, yeah, yeah, Armenians, Copts, and uh, they, they believe, you know, they Ethiopians. Yes, they, well, they, they would just call them essences. And, then, and, they, and they don't say they get lost when they're no. combined. If they're combined, but they're still... Right. The main thing with monophysites did not create a heresy. They just simply uh, <coughs> felt that, that the Council of Chalcedon was betraying the teachings of the Third Ecumenical Council and that it was heretical. That's what monophysitism is. is not an unwillingness to accept the, ter- the new terminology. Because I see the problem with Eutychianism in that it makes Christ almost a, a, a... He's human, but he's sort of a superhuman that loses his connection to us. Yes, right. And, and, and where phrases like he's tempted and always swear is kind of lose their meaning. Right. Actually, the uh, heresy of Athardodocetism, which comes out after, I mean, and that is somewhat related to Eutychianism. So, but actually, it's interesting. The monophysites like Severus of Antioch are really the big, uh, you know, the best writings against Athardocetism are from him, and he also wrote a, a very nice uh, set of books uh, attacking uh, strict Eutychianism of kind of, the, of this idea of the humanity and divinity becoming mixed, uh, because the because the, the, the monophysites because they were affirming, unwilling to adopt our terminology, that left things kind of squishy on the terminological side. So the, so there was temptations to Eutychianism, but they were they were actually the most active in having to refute those those heresies. Yes. So why didn't they come up with the formula uh, one person into essence? Well, essentially that was their formula. But why? You mean why? Because that was the way. But who, well, that's the question. Why not? See, that's so. I mean, somebody has to decide that that uh, the Latin word natura should mean fusus instead of essence. If they had translated it to essences, well, then it would be a whole different thing. Now, of course, the formula of union already had two es, two uh, fusus in it, and because Cyril was able to see that you could use different, you could use fusus in different ways. So he said, well, I'm using it this way over here, but you could use it that way, and as long as you understand it the right way, that's fine with me. And so in some ways, the monophysites are less flexible than Cyril was himself. I mean, they, the problem with them is they wanted to fixate on Cyril's uh, early terminology and not allow any deviation from it. And in a way, uh, so the, the problem with monophysites Monophysites essentially is that they are fundamentalists and, and unwilling to, you know, unwilling to see that the the theological meaning is more important than the actual terms, and that the terms <coughs> are somewhat relative, uh, can be can be relative depending on what you mean by them. Yes. 
Yes, and that's, that's kind of because this group that was being readmitted, uh, you know, the former supporters of Nestorius, you know, really did include <laughs> former supporters of Nestorius who said, well, now that we're, now that we're back here, let, let's get rid of this term mother of God as well. <laughs> but the, uh, the majority of the council were in fact uh, loyal supporters of the third council and supporters of Cyril and they said no you know that's we we know we've already decided that you know we agree that Mary is the mother of God and we're not going to change that but um, but it does show the ambiguity that came back in in bringing these people back without a kind of more clear repentance I mean all Theodore had to do was agree to because he had always refused to condemn Nestorius so all he had to do was condemn Nestorius and then he's readmitted well, the problem is, you know, he's been writing all these books condemning Cyril and there wasn't any uh, requirement of repentance. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that, although he was readmitted and his uh, later books are accepted, you know, accepted by the church, uh, even in those books, he never really seems to grasp what Cyril is all about. You know, the main point is that the person, the person down here, you know, doing all this stuff in the Gospels, has to be the same person as the person in the Trinity, and that never seems to occur to him, uh, because he's, you know, he's being very careful about preserving the natures and and that, and that's, uh, I don't know why that is, but it, but I think the approach of the Antiochus school is a kind of more scientific, philosophical approach where they're trying to. <coughs> protect the, the, the two natures, but not somehow grasping uh, what I think is the essential, essential message of the gospel, or at least not somehow including it into their system. And that's, uh, you know, which is the incarnation of some God, obviously. And uh, so that's, you know, it's always a, sh a shortcoming uh, in, his, in the writings of some of these people that officially are part of the Orthodox Church, become part of the Orthodox Church, yeah. Of all of these various Egyptian church leaders that you've been talking about, um, are these people mostly Greeks or mostly Copts or some of both? And, and to what extent does that enter into this problem? At this point, they're all Greek. And they're all coming, coming really from Alexandria uh, in the area. They, um, the Copts, there had been a lot of missionary work done among the Copts in the time of Athanasius and, and before the monastic movement really penetrated the Coptic world of the Copts where the Copt just means Egyptians. So these were the Egyptians from the time of the pharaohs who continued on as the peasantry in Egyptian villages. Uh, after the conquest of Alexander the Great, you had all the Greeks coming in. Alexandria was established by Alexander the Great, so it was a, it was a Greek city. <clears throat> and the initial entrance of Christianity was into the urban uh, Egypt in, through the Jewish uh, settlements in Alexandria and later to the Greek world gradually entering into the uh, rural Coptic population now <clears throat> what happens is that as Egypt well the monastic movement starts bringing in the Copts uh, but it, as the uh, Egyptian church becomes separated from the rest of the church 
because it's, of its rejection. And actually, it, it, in general, the Egyptian church is, re, remains a sort of moderate objectors to Chalcedon and the most willing to accept explanations and make uh, deals through, you know, to the Fifth Council. But the, uh, the isolation kind of the, as the cops kind of become involved as in the monastic movement, they start becoming more involved in the overall Egyptian life and the uh, Egyptian church, you know, ultimately becomes a Coptic church, in, especially after the Muslim conquest, where, where, where it becomes cut off from the Greek world. But, uh, they, but the, at this point, you should, it's, it's really a mistake to see any of this in terms of kind of incipient nationalism, as so many people try to do, is to say, oh, well, this is all just political. The Egyptians, you know, were wanting to have their own Egyptian country, and so they made up this special Egyptian theology. No, not at all. This is just very legitimate concerns about, uh, well, because this, this was a great change in terminology, and uh, perhaps with some tactical mistakes in bringing this about without proper explanation or safeguards as to what all this was going to mean. And th that all kind of happens by the time you get to the Fifth Council. But by the time you get to the Fifth Council, it's 100 years later. These churches have already been around for a century. And so once you have something going for a century, it's a totally different thing than stopping it from starting in the first place. And that's why uh, you still have them today. Well, also that and the Muslim conquests, actually. That's probably the biggest reason why we have it today. Because the Muslims did, well, because at the time of the Muslim conquest, they, actually the, the uh, Monophysite churches had almost all been reunited, but the Muslims did not like them being reunited, so they took away all the bishops that were in favor of uh, union and put in all the ones that were against it. And so that's, they perpetuated, actually, the uh, Monophysites as separate churches. And that's why now you're having the negotiations starting up again with the modern world and more access to the outside. Yes? Uh, yeah. I'm just sort of puzzled about the preposition that's used in the formula that you have on the model. Mm -hmm. um, the way that I'm used to thinking about it is there's a sort of idea of containment of the nature of the person. Yes. Well, that seems to, the way that that's written, it seems to, it's sort of the converse of it. You're looking at the same person in both natures. Is that what the... Yes, actually, and it's all kind of, because it's new, you know, people trying to struggle with these ideas and it was uh, it was very difficult because people tended to see the divine nature and the divine person the divine person is inseparable with the divine nature so therefore when Cyril says the son of God dies on the cross for some people, well that's got to be heretical because how can the divine nature die on the cross? But Cyril doesn't say the divine nature dies on the cross. He's saying the divine person dies on the cross. But for some people, that, there's no you can't separate the two. You know, if 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 uh, if, the, if the Son of God died on the cross, then divinity died, and, and divinity can't die. So it has to be another person. Well, ultimately, the church, you know, has comes to the point of saying, well, there has to be a you know a separation that that the, that the divine person. You know, obviously, the divine person can't walk. Divinity can't walk around, wear clothes, uh, be born, get hungry, tired, thirsty. But the divine person does all of that by transcending the limits of his own divine nature 
and through his adoption of humanity in the same way that we, human persons, transcend the limits of our human nature in coming into communion with God. Human nature can't do a lot of the things that, uh, that we ultimately are going to do, but we surpass the limits of human nature through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Yes? Stepping back a bit from the, the council itself, what you've been talking about, uh-huh. and is more concerned with um, Christian thought since that time until okay. today, okay? Um, the analysis that you have given us mm-hmm. of what happened at Calcy mm-hmm. and of what the real issues were and the confusions and so forth, mm-hmm. how long has this analysis been current in either East or West? Well, I would say that that was that is the current. I mean, it was the current analysis. I mean, it was. It, if you look at the acts of the council <coughs> and, um, and the and what happens in the you know the whole uh, movement to the Fifth Ecumenical Council uh, implies that that the Eastern Church sees shortcomings in the Fourth Ecumenical Council that it's not it's not spelling things out enough that they uh, I mean ultimately that's why they uh, you know condemn Theodoret of Cyrus's writings I mean Theodore, that the Fourth Council brings him back in but doesn't doesn't qualify it and then they, so the the uh, Chalcedonians in in the East said well then this is obviously leading to a misunderstanding of what we're doing here. And so they, the, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, you know, recondemns, essentially reverses, in a, in a partially, the decision of Chalcedon on Theodoret, on, uh, on Ibis, who was also brought back at, at Chalcedon, and, uh, and then goes on to condemn the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia, whom Cyril had wanted to condemn earlier, but who hadn't, had, you know, there hadn't been enough support for that in the Fifth Council that is, that's done. And uh, also the Fifth Council is, you know, much more, you know, emphatic about seeing the, you know, that they that the formulas of Cyril have to be affirmed, that they can't just be implied that they're not orthodox. You have to say no, that they are orthodox because they're part of Saint Cyril of Alexandria's writings, isn't there? And we consider Cyril as orthodox. But the, the, what that has to be done is explain of how what they mean, how you can understand them. So I think. You know what I'm laying out is not some kind of uh, uh, you know new uh, revisionist view. I mean, this is just how the church, the Eastern Church at the time, I'm looking at you know even at the, in the Council of the, of the Acts of the Council, and and immediately after how they viewed all this. Now, what's happened is that in, in English, uh, our textbooks you know originally were mostly coming from Western sources and. Uh, the problem, I mean, at the council is that, and, and afterwards, is that Leo uh, was not at all sympathetic with the Eastern concerns about the tome or about the council. Consistently, Leo and some of his successors really kind of tried to block attempts at uh, clarifying these issues. But ultimately, the popes, you know, agreed and, and uh, went along with uh, some of these, you know, the efforts towards, you know, Clarifying Chalcedon in terms of Saint Cyril's theology, and so that's, you know, from the point of view of the early church, I'd say that, you know, we're not taking a parochial view. We're we're 
taking a view that was accepted by the later popes as well. But what's happened in modern times is that the uh, Western view ten has tended to look at what Leo himself thought at Leo's tome and Chalcedon as ends, as if that was somehow the perfect end of the story and that you know everything else was just superfluous and that the Easterners were really half heretical anyway. And I think that's a, that's a modern uh, error and misinterpretation as to what was going on and not at all the church's understanding at the time. Yes. I'm going to have to ask your forbearance with me. Okay. I'm not a specialist, uh, and I probably have some of my facts wrong, but, but I have been under the impression, uh-huh. and correct me if I'm wrong, that basically from the time of the Fourth Council until uh, the last few decades, until the 20th century, uh-huh. that uh, the the Copts, the Ethiopians, the Jacobites, and the Armenians mm-hmm. all considered uh, all the rest of us to be heretics and have no, nothing to do with us. And conversely, yeah. Yeah. that uh, both the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox world uh, had the same attitude towards um, the Orientals. And... and uh, 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 but that in uh, the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, something like that, mm-hmm. there have been efforts from both Rome and the Orthodox mm-hmm. uh, uh, discussing with cops and Armenians, etc., etc., uh, that have been a re- some kind of rapprochement. Okay, mm-hmm. now. Uh, is this not? Is this bad history? Is this not? Clear? Yeah, it's, it is. Uh, because if you look at, I mean, from the time of Chalcedon to the Muslim conquest, is a period of almost completely uninterrupted dialogue and and um, efforts, you know, on the part of the Eastern Chalcedonian churches and the Monophysite churches to reconcile, you know, with highs and low points, periods when they were in communion, periods when they weren't, and uh, and I think the you know the, the understanding that this was a problem of you know really in the interpretation of Chalcedon that essentially that they were trying to end up with the same faith and how best to define it is understood you know by both throughout. This is not really seen as that they had invented some either one had invented. A heresy. Now, you would say that from the Coptic side or the Monophysite side, they could say, well, yes, Leo's tome is uh, obviously just an attempt to bring back Nestorianism. And some could say, well, the formula is that the Monophysites are using this because they, you know, maybe they want to bring in Eutychianism. But especially once you got past Theodore and you got into the period where the Eastern uh, fathers were trying to restore. The, the preeminence of, of uh, Cyril's in the Third Council in the interpretation of Chalcedon, that they, they definitely saw that the, the pro- it was a problem of clarification. Now, once you have the Muslim conquest, uh, negotiations with, with the uh, Monophysite churches uh, you know, almost completely end for a very long period of time. And 
you have so you have in, in modern times is when that sort of restarts. But I wouldn't say that our that that restart is just kind of part of some new ecumenical interest, but it was because there was a more of a political freedom, and and the the progress was so rapid because so much of the work, uh, you know, was already done. That essentially the Fifth Ecumenical Council solves the, the basic problem that the Monophysites were objecting to, and that's why when you get to that, you know that, uh, you know, there's always in fact, the ability to, you know, of, of uh, the church to at times bring bring these East, the monophysite churches into communion, you know, kind of comes and goes through that whole period because they had a, they had uh, a basis for theological union, but they also then there would be various obstacles. So it just it kind of would go back and forth, and this and that's why, you know, it's really not it was a very quick. Now, for that, uh, you know, for formulas of, of union uh, in modern times to be formed, the, the difficulty is that the, the people, these churches, are not really wanting to just disappear either. They, you know, since they've been around for 1,500 years, they're not, you know, they don't, they don't. In some ways, it's very difficult for them to say, well, here, why have we been, uh, you know, suffering uh, for 1,500 years, cut off from everybody? Yes. Uh, According to the Orthodox, are the Monophysites, or were they schism? Is that a schism or a heresy? I, well, in basis, basically, it's a schism over terminology. You could say that there are some uh, theological differences of opinion that do develop over time, and uh, but but by and large, it's it's a schism over terminology. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, because from the Catholic point of view, it's a, it's it, yeah, it's it's been often as a terrible heresy, and they actually look at the historians as really being the misunderstood people who are actually much closer. But uh, we would look at it the other way around. If the Fifth Council solved these issues, uh-huh. why was this schism not healed? The restoration of of Cyril in ortho, in the Orthodox interpretation of Chalcedon. Did reconcile many Monophysites to the Orthodox Church in the period before the Muslim invasions, and uh, it's just that that work was not complete, and the Muslim invasions, uh, Muslim conquests, perpetuated and, and perhaps strengthened uh, the, the existence of a separate of separate churches.